The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. God formed out of the dust of the ground humans, Adam and Eve, and that he then breathed into them the breath of life, and humans became living souls. And the incredible, intense, precious uh, value that God has put upon humans is the theme of the next uh, several weeks before we enter into Advent and Christmas. And uh, we're going to be talking about that God, when he created us in his image, he created us male and female. And that's a very distinctness that God gives to humanity to follow in male and femaleness. He gave us work to do. That's part of being created in the image of God. It's not just a result of the fall (laughs) in Genesis 3. Work was in the Garden of Eden. And we believe that part of creating the image of God also means rest, Sabbath rest. What does it mean that we are like God in the sense that he is in rest now, not work mode? That we are spiritual beings is part of the image of God, that we have souls. In fact, we don't just have souls, we are souls. We don't just have bodies, we are bodies and we are souls. What does it mean to be a spiritual being? Being created in the image of God also means we have moral choice. We have volition. We choose, and, and the choices have consequences. That's part of being in the creation of God, in the image of God. We are not as the geese who are flying south without even knowing it. They just lift off, and they start flying south. They're, they're hardwired to do that. And we, we have choice. We can make decisions. And, and then also we're going to look at the fact that we are relational beings, like God is a relational God. So these and many other factors are part of what it means to be created in the image of God. And this morning, we're going to start into that more specifically by looking at the fact that we are created in the image of God, and that means the first command that God said is that we are to subdue creation and rule over and have dominion over all creation. That's part of being image bearers. So if you would take your Bibles now and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 1, And we'll be reading in chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, as we look at God's image. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Would you stand with me to honor God's word this morning as I read it to us this morning? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you, creator God, for the fact that everything you do is good and very good. And we pray now as we impart uh, this scripture, as we think 
of your word as we try to go to the depths of your meaning, we ask you to give us understanding. Sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is over all creation, would you have your dominion in our lives as we understand our responsibility as the stewards of all that you've made. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1966, a man by the name of Dr. Lynn Townsend White, Jr., an American historian and a professor at Princeton uh, University, gave a lecture that changed history for many people. The lecture was entitled, The Historical Roots of Our Ecologic Crisis, and in which he said that the Judeo-Christian tradition throughout the Middle Ages was at the root of the ecological crisis of the 20th century. He said, quote, well, what people do about their ecology depends on what they think about themselves in relation to all things around them. And then, citing the Genesis creation story, he argued that Christianity had normalized the exploitation of the natural world. Why did he say that? He said it for two reasons. Number one, he said because the Bible asserts man's dominion Man's dominion being created in God's image and that over the rest of creation uh, there is this anthropocentrism, this man-centeredness over all of creation. And secondly, because creation or Christianity makes a distinction between humans and all the rest of creation which are not created in the image of God and therefore with no soul and thus inferior. And so Dr. White uh, concluded that we, the Christian tradition, is the result is responsible for the ecological crisis in the 20th century. And uh, these beliefs were published in 1967. They entered many textbooks that are found in universities. He argued for the abandoning of superior and contemptuous attitudes and adopting more of a model like that of St. Francis of Assisi, viewing creation as a democracy which all creatures are respected and which uh, man's rule is delimited. So, so how, do we, how do we respond to that? His work from 1966 was reprinted several times. In fact, several of you might have had textbooks in university that taught that somehow, at least in part, Christian beliefs and, and attitudes are to blame for ecological crisis on planet Earth today. This is where it got its root. Francis Schaeffer was one of the first to respond to Dr. White. He said in in a, in a later time, he said in a book, uh, writing in the defense, he said, the Christian is called upon to exhibit this dominion under God rightly, treating the things that God has given as having value in themselves and exercising this dominion without being destructive. We could go way back further than Francis Schaeffer and we could talk about John Calvin, who in 1554 wrote that having dominion means a responsible care and a keeping that does not neglect or injure or abuse or degrade or dissipate or corrupt or mar or ruin the earth and all of its creation. So we have to ask ourselves, what planet are we on? We have to ask ourselves that question. And the answer to that question will determine how we treat it, the planet that we are on. And as we saw from the federal election that we just had this past week, the environment is of great importance to Canadians, especially those of a younger generation. And uh, the immediate attention that has been given to this subject of the environment 
in, in comp- the whole lives of the millennial age group that has grown up with, with this understanding is, is huge. We cannot ignore it. Indeed, it is why a young teenage girl from Sweden, Greta Thunberg, can leave her schooling behind and enter into a literal career of being an environmental activist as a young teenager. So we, we ignore this matter to our demise. We cannot ignore it. But what is a Christian response to it? Is there a Christian response? What does the Bible have to say about how we steward the environment, the creation that God has given us? Is, is, in, is there in Genesis something that we could learn? Indeed, yes, there is. The resounding answer is yes. God is the creator, and he has given us a role in creation care. If you will take time someday and just Google creation care, you will find that one of the first sites you might hit is a series of lectures, and you could look at them on video, of Dr. Douglas J. Moo of Wheaton College, who writes and actually shares in video form a biblical theology of the natural world. He'll go way deeper than we have time to do in this brief sermon this morning. But it is important that at least we look at what is at stake and some of the misunderstandings that exist on how we view the earth. So let's take a look then, first of all, at the stewardship of the environment and the three different views that you see listed in your yellow insert in your bulletin. The first view we will call biocentrism or creation-centered view or or nature-centered view, which holds that all inhabitants of creation in the cosmos are of equal status. In other words, this approach, and it has various components to it, there are people on the extreme end of it that would say that a human life is of equal value to any animal life. And then the more moderates on the other end would just say that that it's a reaction really to the man-centeredness, the anthropocentrism that they see coming out of Christian tradition, just like Dr. White highlighted. And so we see in this biocentrism really an unsustainable approach to looking at how we manage planet Earth. If we relinquish our role as image bearers of God, who have thinking and choosing abilities, and somehow call creation a democracy, it is a really unsustainable notion. And we cannot take it too seriously, except to understand that those who who vehemently will argue for this position are also image bearers, and we must treat them with absolute dignity and respect. They have something that they're very concerned about. And the second position is this man-centered anthropocentrism view that holds that creation was given to humans by God for us to use, some would say to abuse even, for our own purposes. We must not dismiss Dr. White's uh, contention that Christians are to blame for some of the ecological crisis. I'm not saying I agree with him at all. I'm just saying that we must not dismiss it, for there have been theological positions down through history that have definitely opened the door to that accusation. And so an abuse that God has given us in twisting Scripture and so on. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. It's amazing that such a simple verse as that could be misconstrued. When I read that verse, I clearly see that it's not our earth, it's God's earth. He's the owner, (laughs) we're just stewarding something that he's put into our hands to care for. And in spite of it, there are theological positions that, that are very 
very man-centered in their ecology instead of God-centered. And in many cases, the careless treatment of this theme in Christian circles is connected to their view of end times, of the last days of Revelation. You know, this is something that I've been learning as I've studied Genesis, is that I must connect my Genesis to my Revelation. I must connect my understanding of God's creation with my understanding of the last things that God's going to do at the end of the age. And so we see very clearly that there has been a misuse, I think, of the end times of Scripture. We, we have heard, I have heard, it said, well, it doesn't really matter what we do to the planet. It's all going to burn anyway. It's all going to burn. What does it matter if we care for this earth that much? Where do they get that idea? They get it from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works therein shall be burned up. That's a true verse. That's talking about a reality yet to come. We do not dismiss that verse. But how do we understand it? There have been, of course, extreme views of end times, just as we have studied some of extreme views of Genesis and origins. I think one of the, the ones that has been misconstrued, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody's eschatology this morning, but the last, the Left Behind series it, it has been often misconstrued. And that, that approach to at last days has been understood as, well, we're all going to get airlifted out of here. And, and it doesn't matter what happens to this planet. There's a misconstrued, there's a misunderstanding, there's a twisting of God's good intentions for creation. I honestly don't understand how anything like that understanding of end times justifies any kind of abuse to earth. I just don't get it. Think about it, if you took that same attitude with regard to your physical body, oh, it doesn't matter. I've already signed the papers. I'm being cremated. I'm going to burn too. Does that mean that you can abuse your body? Does that mean that you just take your body for granted and just, no, you don't do that. Well, why would you do that with creation? It doesn't make sense. Yes, indeed, these bodies of ours are perishable. And one day, the Lord's word says that there will be a day of resurrection when we will take the perishable and put it aside and we will put on the imperishable. Yeah, amen. And, and, and everyone will rise. Everyone will rise. Jesus said that in John 5. Everyone will rise. Some will rise to be condemned and some will rise to enter into eternal life. But that does not give me reason to, to abuse this body. The Bible teaches us that we are created in the image of God. These bodies are precious. The Bible says for us as Christians, we are temples of the living God. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. This thing that you get up with every morning, you go to sleep with every night, this thing that you feed and you wash and you care for, this is a temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. How do you treat this thing? Though one day it's going to be laid aside, it's going to be just little ashes and dust. 
still right now, it's a temple. And as we began to look at creation several weeks ago, we saw that there's very much temple language in how God created this earth. This is God's earth. This is, he says, heaven is my throne, but earth is my footstool. And so the same passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 20, goes on. Paul says, you are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body, he says. Chapter 6, verse 20. Honor God with this body. You're not your own. This flies in the face of current attitude that men and women have about their bodies. And I'm sorry, but I've got to mention it. In the teaching of the scripture, we have to say, and this movie, Unplanned, is coming. We're going to be showing it in a few Wednesdays. We talk about abortion. We talk about what a woman's body means to her. The women's right to her own body. I understand the, the, under, I understand the abuse that women have faced down through the ages. But there's a misunderstanding of what God has said to every human being. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Honor God with your body. This idea that a woman has the right to end, to terminate the living, created, image of God-bearing child that's within her womb is absolutely outside of God's design. No human has that right to end life. Only God has that right. It's a misunderstanding. It's the same anthropocentrism that we are the center of the universe, that, that all life revolves around us, our needs, our wants, our desires. It's an offense against God, our Creator. It's a degradation of life itself. And as I say this, I want to say as well, listen, I want to be pro-life in every way, not just for the unborn child that has not a voice for himself or herself. I want to be pro-life for those, those women who have had abortions. I want to be pro-life for them as they've gone through a very difficult road and journey. We better make sure that when we say we're pro-life, we're pro-life. All people, all people created in the image of God. This passage, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. I remember my mother telling me a story when I was a child. And I shared this, I think, in Bolivia a few, few years ago. And I'll tell you a real quick version of it. She said, she said one day Johnny, had a, was, he, he built a boat. He built a boat and he, 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 he spent all kinds of, of his own resources to build this little boat one summer. And when it was all built and painted and ready to go, he went down to the lake and he, he set sail this little boat. And this little boat caught a wind and the wind took it out and he lost this boat. It was gone. He, he went out to try and rescue it. It was gone. And several weeks later, he was walking through his town and he saw in the window of a store his boat. He walked into the store owner and he said, Sir, you give me that boat. That's my boat. He said, Well, son, if you're going to want this boat, you're going to have to buy this boat. So he went home and he opened up his piggy bank. He shook out all his money on his bed. He took all of his money and he went to the store and he said, Sir, now give me my boat. And the man took the boat out of the window, gave it to him. And Johnny walked outside and he hugged that little boat and he said, Now, boat, you're mine. In fact, you're twice mine. First, because I made you. And second, because I bought you. Amen? 
You see, that's what God did. He, he made you. He made you in his image. And then we got all messed up and lost in sin. And then Jesus Christ came to, to purchase your soul, to give you eternal life. He redeemed you with his own precious blood. Oh, how precious we are to God, every human. This is the word of God. And so we must, we must have a stewardship mindset when we think about our own bodies, when we think about life, general life, bio, life. We must think about stewardship attitudes. John Walton writes this, it is more in keeping with the text to move away from a human-centered view of the cosmos for God has created the cosmos for himself, not for us. Though it is true that he has given us a high status and privilege in this world, thus our role in subduing and ruling must be seen as a function of stewardship, not of ownership. How do we be faithful stewards of God's creation? Let's move on to the third position, God-centered, theocentric. This idea that indeed God has asked us to steward all of creation with respect because it belongs to God. And uh, as I began studying Genesis, I realized that God is throughout the text dozens of times. It's all about God. And uh, we cannot twist the scriptures and think that somehow we're at the center. So we don't sing songs to Mother Earth here. We sing songs to Father God. It's not a gender thing. It's, it's the fact that God is creator. And Mother Earth is something that God has given us to steward. We don't sing songs to Mother Earth. We don't take Genesis chapter 6, which we'll be studying into the new year. We'll be studying the Noah, or the, the flood, and so on. And uh, we don't take that and turn Noah into the first environmental activist who, by his wonderful courage, saved two of every species from extinction. I mean, that would just be a wrong hermeneutic, wouldn't it? It would be a wrong way to approach Genesis 6. Genesis 6 is about God. And as we look at that, it's about God's mercy. It's about, it's about what God's plans were for humanity that had gone completely south and he was going to bring back on target. And so we must look at Scripture from a God-centeredness. This is God's world, and we have God's purposes to pursue as God's stewards. So in Genesis 1, when it says in verse 28 that God blessed Adam and Eve, and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds and the, everything. This is all about stewardship, isn't it? God is just entrusting something into our care. The, the very words, subdue and rule, has a domestication of animals idea and a utilization of natural resources, mining, the harnessing of earth's energy, irrigation, farming. This is all about that, folks. That's what the Bible is talking about. And when we turn to Genesis 2.15 and see that attitude, it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in a garden, and he worked it, abad in Hebrew. He worked it, and then he kept it, shamar in Hebrew. This idea is to, to till and dress and work like gardening words, and then the other one to keep is to tend and guard and take care of and look after. And so it conveys a loving, caring, sustaining type of keeping. Clearly we are given a trust and nothing of what God has said in these verses suggests an inhumane slaughter, an abuse, or a neglect as custodians of creation. Imagine for a moment that you're going on a trip 
and um, you, you phone up your best friends, and you say, hey, we're going away. Could you watch our house while we're gone? And uh, they say, no problem. And so, you know, uh, water the plants, feed the hamster, uh, check the house, bring in the mail, etc. You leave on your flight for two to three weeks, and you have a wonderful vacation because you're not worried because your best friends are taking care of your house. And you get back, and you get late at night back, and you take a taxi home. You walk up to the door, and you see, starting right away, you say, something's wrong. The mailbox is overflowing. The sidewalk hasn't been shoveled. You open the door, and you smell this musty smell. You turn the lights on, and the plants look withered. You smell this thing. You go down, and the sump pump hasn't been working. There's water in the basement. And the hamster, well, he's nowhere to be found. You see, God has said, I'm leaving you in charge. That doesn't mean simply that I want you to be moral beings that treat each other with respect, as my image bears. It means that I've left you in charge of everything. Steward it. Be custodians. Keep it. Tend it. Watch over it. That's part of our responsibility. By the way, I mentioned the hamster in that story because when we were in Bolivia... A very dear couple from, of ours, friends of ours, I should say, from New Zealand, were going back to New Zealand on home assignment. And they had a hamster named Harry. And they lent us this hamster to take care of this hamster for uh, several weeks. And so... Uh, <laughs> I got a drink of water. <laughs> and so... I asked my wife's permission to share this, but... Um, so anyway, you know what happens when there's a diffusion of responsibility? <laughs> it means that everybody thought everybody else was taking care of Harry. But we'd walk by his cage, and, and one day, I think it was our daughter Emily that walked by his cage, and there was no movement, and Harry had died. And so... <laughs> and so... I think I'll share the end of the story. Um, the... Uh, the worst part of it is that they phoned from New Zealand. Faye called from New Zealand and said, how's everything going? How's Harry? And Emily didn't know what to say on the phone. And then they got back, and Hamish, their son, whose hamster Harry was, um, he wanted to go and visit the gravesite of Harry. So <laughs> I just took him down the road and threw him in the dumpster. <laughs> So, I'm sorry, I, I hope that, I hope you're still going to finish the sermon with me, but uh, that was a mistake. But I think diffusion of responsibility happens, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, think about it, all the environmental issues that you could list. I mean, I started going through lists and I thought I would list them and I thought, no, I, that's going to waste a lot of time. I, but think of all the issues you could list. There's a diffusion of responsibility. We often think, well, someone else is taking care of that. Someone else is dealing with the air, the water, the land, the whatever. We've got to be careful. Let's move on and talk about, about what can we do. I, I want to conclude uh, for a moment with how should we then live. Uh, I'd like to say three or four things. And the first thing I'd like to say is that we need to be focused on eternity while living in 
while living in the moment. We don't live under the philosophy of materialism or consumerism or even the politically correct environmentalism of the here and now. We, we, we do not live for only in the moment. We have a future orientation. And so we believe that, that we have an accountability with the people that are around us. We have a belief in eternal life, the souls of individuals. So we, we focus on eternity. It doesn't mean we justify any ecological indifference, but it does mean that we bring God's value system into the conversations about the environment. A second thing is we avoid extremes while we get the facts. I suggest avoiding extremes because sometimes the facts are not clear. And we could talk long about this, about how to be wise consumers of information, what science should be trusted and what shouldn't be. I, 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 start, I wish I could have done a lot more reading. I, I, I read a whole bunch of articles, and there was one article particularly that I, I just want to read a quote from here that I think is important for us to remember in the West. He says, Tragically, however, people with the strong environmental consciousness who live predominantly in Western countries sometimes seek to impose their own environmental sensibilities on people still struggling to survive in the developing world. In fact, further advances in human welfare for the poor are now often threatened by the belief in the West that human enterprise and development are fundamentally incompatible with environmental protection, which is seen by some as the quintessential value in evaluating progress. This false choice not only threatens to prolong widespread poverty, disease, and early death in the developing world, but it also undermines the very conditions essential to achieving genuine environmental stewardship. I mean, I'm just saying, we could, we could have a conversation this morning, for example. We could have a conversation about global warming, and we could divide the house right away. And we could have some people here, they're going to bring out studies that suggest that global warming is harmful to human health and the planet Earth and so on. And we could have other people that would raise up uh, articles and studies that have been done that say, no, there's no conclusive evidence, like the one done at John Hopkins University not too long ago. Commissioned by the Congress of the United States of America, a, a study that was done, and they concluded that there was no conclusive evidence to justify fears of global warming. Now, I'm not saying I'm in that camp. I'm just saying I don't know. But I am going to say to you that does it matter if we have to have conclusive scientific studies done on every matter that affects the environment just for us to live responsibly? I think the fact is we don't have to have conclusive evidence in order to just say, well, I don't think it's good for me to maybe have, just throw the plastics in the garbage. When there's a whole mass of plastics in the ocean right now that humans do not know how to deal with. I think it's not a bad idea that I should learn a good recycling program in my house. I think it's not a bad idea that I get a low energy light bulb. I don't think it's a bad idea that we learn to conserve and consume better, be thinking that about those things. Walk more, drive less, and so on. We could go on and on. I'm just saying simply that we need to get the facts. And when we don't have them, we just need to learn to live responsibly. Responsibly. John Wesley lived a long time ago, quite a holistic Christian mindset. He, he said this, I believe in my heart that faith in Jesus Christ can and will lead us beyond an exclusive concern for the well-being of other human beings to the broader concern for the well-being of the birds in our backyard, the fish in our rivers, and every living creature on the face of the earth. 
So as Christians, when Jesus Christ is Lord of all creation, should we not be those who step up and say, God, you said this is good. Can I just make one more thought before we conclude this day? And uh, I'll ask you to stand in a minute with me to pray and we'll conclude our service. But I just want to say this, that as we think about connecting the end days with creation, and here, here we are living in between those two eras, I want you to think about the fact that there is continuity that God's designed between the Genesis creation and the final picture. And there's continuity in the way we see our earthly bodies. We, we see in Scripture that somehow these earthly bodies are going to be raised up and we're going to get imperishable bodies, but we're going to recognize each other in heaven. Somehow we're going to be identified. There's continuity between this body and the body that I'm going to get in heaven. And I believe in same fashion there is continuity between this old earth and the new heavens and the new earth that the scriptures teach about. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, when Paul says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the liberty, a freedom of the glory of the children of God. This idea, what is he saying? Paul is teaching that there's continuity. That right now, this creation has been affected by sin, sinners. As image bearers that have sinned, we see that the creation is groaning, waiting to be liberated when we are liberated as children of God. And so it means that, that there's continuity between what God's going to do in us, in our bodies, redeeming us and giving us glorified bodies, and what God's going to do in this earth, in renewing this earth. So the future new heaven and new earth is going to look a lot like this, but without sin. You know, you remember the movie back in 1989, and there was a repeat of it in 1996, All God's Dogs Go to Heaven, right? All Dogs Go to Heaven. How many have seen that movie? Okay, four of you. <laughs> I'm not, it's, it's not a trivializing, I'm not suggesting, I'm not trivializing heaven. I ask the question, will dogs be in heaven? I'd like to say cats no, but dogs yes. We got a vote over here for dogs? <laughs> Here's what Derek Thomas, I love what he writes. He says, are dogs in heaven? My answer is always the same. Of course. If you think about it, it's rather silly a question. What sort of new heavens and a new earth are you actually looking for if it's not a restoration of Eden? Amen? And he goes on to say, what do you think it's going to look like except it's going to look like this world but without sin? Now, that might be a big oversimplification. But I'm telling you, we have a really strange view of heaven. We have this idea of us floating around. We get our wings and we float around like with harps and cloud to cloud. And, you know, what a lame view of heaven. I mean, what God's going to do is going to be supernaturally abundantly greater than anything we have now and I look around planet earth now and I love it even though this planet earth is under the curse of sin still what an amazing new heaven and a new earth is going to be to look at oh God he's not done with this place it's very good he says is he going to just scrap what's very good no he's going to recreate it he's going to redeem it and this idea of us being bored in heaven oh my goodness no 
We're going to be worshiping the Lamb, but we're going to have work to do in stewarding this new creation that God has given us. It's a beautiful place. And so, would you stand with me? And uh, let's give glory to God, the Creator, the Lord Jesus, who is the one God's Word says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Isn't that wonderful? Father in heaven, we thank you that your Son, our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the Lord of all creation, that all things were created through Him and for Him, that He is before all things, and that in Him all things hold together. And so God, would you help us as your people the followers of Jesus, to love the creation that you have made and that you have given us stewardship over. Make us faithful. We exalt you, Lord Jesus. Dismiss us with your peace. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good day.